This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam, what is not joining us today is my voice. It is still gone. <laughs> yep. I don't know if it will ever be back. Uh, I don't know. Um, it has something to do with my lungs and uh, the, all the stuff going on in my chest and whatnot, and I cough constantly, coughing up phlegm from my lung that's all kind of squished. And uh, I know that sounds gross, but uh, <laughs> it's uh, it just has it's left me hoarse. If I drink a warm beverage, I can get a few seconds of my old voice back, but there's no point doing it here because by the time I said, welcome, friends, that would be it. So anyway, maybe one day I'll get to do a podcast with my regular voice again. Hopefully, it's not been a detriment. People have been able to understand what I'm saying. Nobody has nobody has yet emailed me and said, man, I got no idea what you're saying. So, <laughs> I will. Yeah, I totally forget about it after about... 20 seconds of talking with you being like, yep, you still got a very breathy voice. I forget that it's breathy. You yeah. sound great. Yeah. I mean, all things considered. All things considered, yes. <laughs> hmm. um, <clears throat> so we're coming this week to Mark chapter 12. Um, this is week 12 of our series uh, from the Gospel of Mark. And we're now looking into the mission of Jesus. Jesus is, has undertaken his great mission. The primary reason for which he came, he has started doing that. Uh, right about chapter 9 is when we sort of moved into that focus. And here in chapter 12, it's really lighting up. Um, mm. he, is, he is dealing with, uh, you know, Jesus is so brilliant. I mean, he's such a, he, he's such a brilliant debater. Trying to, trying to argue with him or trick him in any way. I don't even know what these people are thinking, and yet they line up <laughs> one after another. It's your chance is bad. Come on up. And Jesus is going to give you an answer where you're going to be like, uh, bah, bah, uh, bah, bah, well, that's right. Uh, bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's kind of fun to watch. It is. So in the, in the chapter we're talking about today, you get each of the camps who come forward, and it's like they have thought about it, and they get their one question and you're going to see the Pharisees come forward, and you're going to see the Herodians come forward, and you're going to see the Sadducees come forward, and everybody tries to stump him, and they walk away looking rather foolish. And then at the end of the chapter, close to the end of the chapter, Jesus has a question for them, yeah, <laughs> and, and they walk away feeling really foolish. Yeah. Um, the chapter begins with the parable of the tenants. Um, was this, this was one of the ones we covered in our parable series, right? I think so. I think so. There's I, so many that are similar to this. I'm, right. I'm trying to remember if we covered this specific one. Um, so, but Jesus loves putting out parables that are like this, that, yeah. that are saying, you know, we are mere tenants. We're not owners. Right. We're tenants that are managing what God has given us. Right. Um, and you notice this time he does it before they – no one gets a chance to ask him a question. 
mm-hmm. he launches right into this. It's like, and he began to speak to them in parables. He's like, I know you've got your questions. I know you guys mm-hmm. are going to line up here in a minute. Before you do that, let me tell you something about yourselves. Mm-hmm. And th- this is coming right after they've come to him. You got to remember at the end of Mark 11, they're coming to him saying, Hey, you know, you've just cleansed the temple and you've just declared that this is a den of robbers and you've basically, you know, rubbed our noses in it a little bit. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is engaging that question. And he says, okay, let me ask you a question. And they talked about John the Baptist and why all the religious leaders totally ignored the prophet of God. And they refused to kind of explain whether or not they saw John as a prophet because they didn't want to get in trouble. And Jesus has just said, okay, so then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. If you're not going to answer my questions... I'm not going to answer yours. And then he launches into this. And man, the first parable that he starts out with here is damning, very damning of how they have led the people of Israel. Yeah, chapter 12, verse 1 reads, uh, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So the picture we have is there's a, a, a man who owns this vineyard. So he's a, he's a wealthy man. He, he owns a piece of property. And he wants, to, he wants to let some other people work it for him, which mm-hmm. will be to their benefit as well as to his. But even beyond that, like what's interesting to me is right out of the gate, and it just dawned on me as you were reading this, you know, it's the man who planted the vineyard. So he did all the tilling of the soil. He's the one that went out and planted. He's the one that put the fence around it. He dug the pit for the wine press. He built the tower. So yeah. it's like he's done all the labor. He's the one who who <laughs> laid out all the foundation for this vineyard. And then he leased it to tenants to watch as the fruit comes in. So they didn't even build any of this stuff. Yeah, that's true. I I had not honestly not noticed that. Um, that is true. It's like he, he, it's, it's his money and it's also his labor. Mm-hmm. All, everything for this setup comes from him. So it says that he leased it to the tenants and then he went into another country. Verse two, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So this was obviously their deal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, it's, I've made this vineyard. I've given you everything you need to successfully run this vineyard. You know, each year when it's the season, mm-hmm. I would like to come and just get some of your fruit. The rest of it you can keep for yourself. It's Certain, an amazing deal. Yeah, it's, it's an a, amazing deal. It's a phenomenal deal. I'd like to have that deal. <laughs> um, but it doesn't go well. Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully, which is a phrase that kind of carries a meaning that says they might have abused him in some way. It was not, not, it was not good is what they did to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So these servants are coming one after another from this from the owner uh, to the people that are working in the vineyard to do nothing more than to remind them what their arrangement was with the master, with the owner. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
they're that's what they're coming to do. They're not they're not coming in to tell them he says you got to leave or anything like that, but to remind them of what their relationship is with him. This is obviously a picture of Israel and mm-hmm. the prophets and how they treated the prophets. Yeah, totally. And I mean, it, it, we have the chapter breaks, so we're starting chapter 12. But, you know, when, when Mark wrote this, there were no chapter breaks. And so Jesus is just finishing talking about John the Baptist. And guess what Israel and the kings of Israel, Herod, guess what they did to that prophet? They abused him yep. and killed him. And so he's he's just coming out of talking about John the Baptist right into this parable, and it's not much of a, hmm, I wonder who he's talking about. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. You're the ones who have servant after servant sent to you. You deny that God even sent John the Baptist to you. You're unsure whether he's a prophet of God, and yet you killed him anyway. Yeah. And so this is right on the nose. Like Jesus isn't giving a riddle that nobody can figure out. They know he's talking about them. And like with most things evil, it escalates. First guy, they, they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Second guy, they treated him shamefully, sent him away. Then they killed somebody. It's like, so the, the thing about evil is evil continues to feed on itself and become more evil. Um, the, it's, it, it's one of the clear differences between something that's evil and something that's good. When something is evil, it never satisfies. You mm-hmm. do you, you do the you do this evil. You carry it out, and you think, "Hey, that felt pretty good." I like to do the, I like to do it a little bit longer next time, a little bit more next time, um, and it's why it always mm-hmm. escalates. And this is the this is a a truth in human beings. Mm-hmm. And you see in this story, I mean. Think about this. You know, it's it's here's a man who owns the vineyard, who's entitled to everything on it. He sends a servant whom they beat. That should like anybody in their right mind, like this would be in the court system. Get out. This is eviction notice. I'm I want them thrown in jail. I want them killed. I want them punished for this. And even as they escalate, the owner of the vineyard, think about the mercy that's being extended here. Sure. He, he's not saying, okay, my covenant with you is done. The lease is over. Get out. I don't want anything to do with you people anymore. No, he's, he's extending mercy. He's offering them another chance again and again and again. And as the Lord is, or this in the parable, the man is extending radical mercy. Their wickedness is so intense that every time – the Lord extends an olive branch, they take it and beat them with it. Yeah. You know, they're just absolutely cold, really callous to how good God has been to them. And if you think that they've escalated evil to the very top of the heap, it gets worse. In verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him, the son, to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. What they what that means? I had a couple of people ask me about what inheritance. Um, if a man had one heir, just that heir, um, and the man died, and then the heir died, the property could be claimed by someone else. Um, and so they were basically they jumped to the conclusion that the reason that the son came is that the father had died. And the son was showing up to say, 
I need to check out my holdings here, boys. And they made the assumption that if they killed the son, that they would inherit the the wealth and the land. And I mean, that's just like, again, mm-hmm. you know, people killed Jesus because Jesus threatened their ability to say, no, no, I'm in control. I'm in charge. This is all about, you know, this is all about me. I have the power. You don't have the power. Mm-hmm. And you owe something to me. Yeah. Like, I, I'm, I make a claim on, on what it is that you're managing. And, you know, the, the reality is the parable applies to us because God owns everything that we have and everything we are. And he comes into our lives and says, okay, you know, I, I would like some fruit. <laughs> you know, yeah. I would like some of what yeah. I have given you back. Yeah. Just because you're my steward, and there's, you know, we we have that in us where it's like, man, I don't want to give it back. I don't want to yield. I don't want to surrender this part of my life because I want it too much. Yeah. And there's there's old commentaries actually um, where in early Israel they had something kind of akin to what we would consider squatters' rights, right? Where if you were managing the land for a period, there's some who say two years and some say three years, but if it was three years or the, is the majority. And it was not claimed by somebody, then you took right to own the land. And so here, if there is no heir and there's no one to contend to say, I own the land, and they've been there, they're taking God's kindness and allowing them to be stewards. And now they're saying, essentially, no, 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 it's mine. This is all mine. And I mean, that apply the parable to life, and we're we're all guilty of that to some degree or another. God has given us the air we breathe, the talents we have, the personalities we have. And he says, okay, I want you to use them for our mission. And what do we do? We take all of them and say, no, 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 they're mine. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to use this life for me. And don't you dare demand anything from me um, because it's mine. And we get that attitude in our head and man, it can, it can wreak havoc sure. on the way that we live and think and feel. Um, and it, it makes us adversarial against God if we're not careful. Yeah. But once again, it's a clear sign that selfishness and lack of humility around that drain doth humankind circle. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, the, it's the same old, same old with the, the people involved here. So they have this plan. They're going to kill the son. So they execute it. Verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard, like he was rubbish. They just tossed him away. Hmm. Verse 9 asks a question. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? You have to imagine right about that time, some of those guys were loosening their collars just a little bit, like, you know. (laughs) He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So is this a reference Hmm. here to God saying, I'm going to give it to, you know, my people, my church, you know, to give to what was previously just Israel's, I'm going to give it to my church, which will include both Jews and Gentiles? Mm -hmm. Is that what this is talking about here? I think so, yeah. yeah. I mean, he'll he'll make other references to this in other Gospels where he'll look at them and say, you know, the king was given to you, but I'm going to take it away from you and give it to those that are producing its fruit. Right. And it's it's a reference to the Gentiles. So I think this also is it. Um, 
and and Jesus, you know, this is brilliant. They understood the people of that day, particularly the religious leaders, knew the scriptures forward and backwards. And so, in the previous chapter, you remember when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's riding on the colt, and everybody's crying out Hosanna, you know, and they're laying their coats down in the palm branches and everything else. Sure, they're quoting from Psalm one eighteen, which where it says, "Save us, O Lord." That's Hosanna in the highest, right? They're quoting Psalm one eighteen, and so when Jesus comes, and they're like, "Tell them to stop! This is blasphemy!" That they're quoting Psalm one eighteen in reference to you. Now, Jesus, when he says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, guess what Psalm that comes out of? It's also Psalm one eighteen, and so they rebuke Jesus for allowing people to quote Psalm one eighteen about him, and now he's taking Psalm one eighteen. And he's quoting it about them. And so <laughs> it's like he's saying, no, 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 this is, this psalm is about me. And by the way, this portion right here that's rebuking somebody, guess who that's rebuking? It's rebuking you. Yeah. The stone that you want to just throw away is the stone that determines where all other stones are positioned. And you are throwing me away. Yeah. It's it's brilliant rebuke. Sure. And they would have totally, <laughs> totally caught that. Sure. Well, that's what it says in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They mm. knew what he was talking about. Hey, mm, maybe, maybe this is about us, yeah. In fact, with... Uh, all through the Old Testament, you read the prophets, it's no accident that Jesus comes talking about a vineyard, because all through the Old Testament, places like Isaiah and Jeremiah, like when it talks about the vineyard, that is one of the metaphors that God uses again and again and again to talk about his people Israel. And so, it's no accident that it's a vineyard as opposed to, you know, an olive tree farm or something else. It's He's Jesus is clearly saying the ones that are supposed to be in charge of leading Israel, right? They're not missing it. It's pretty obvious. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we have uh, you know writings about the uh, new branches being grafted into the vine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and that's us. That's the Gentiles. Yeah. We're the new branches being grafted in. Yeah, good catch. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So after that story, we come to one of my favorite stories. This is. I don't know. Sometimes when I close my eyes, I can see it. And I've just this is one of those where I'm going to tell you, I think Jesus was a little bit amused and also very concerned. It's like that mixture of, you guys are such dopes. And then also, <laughs> wow, you guys are such dopes. So this is when they come to Jesus and that what they're trying to do here is to get Jesus to say something bad about the taxes that the Romans impose on them, uh, because that's what Romans do. They come in, conquer, and then they <laughs> impose a tax. So there's two groups that come out to him here, and it's interesting because, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. So the they there, obviously, right now you've got this big cabal of kind of like all the religious leaders who are like, we've got to do something about this Jesus guy. Whichever little group you're in, We've got to deal with this Jesus guy. Mm-hmm. So they think, this will be fun. Let's send out the Pharisees and the Herodians, some from each group, and let them talk about taxes with him. This is going <laughs> to be good. Because really, 
The Pharisees are religious zealots. All they're pro-Israel all the time. They mm-hmm. hate the occupying Romans. They mm-hmm. would rather do anything than pay them tax, pay the pay them taxes. Um, and the Herodians are like, "Hey, uh, you guys are all right. Take our money." <laughs> and it's like mm-hmm. they almost embraced the Romans. Yeah, but you remember the the Herods, all the kings, the Herods, the fifty thousand sure. Herods. There are, <laughs> yeah, they are, their power is basically afforded to them from the Roman Senate back in the day, right? And so they very much lean on the authority of Rome. So they love Rome and they love taxation because it all gives them jobs. And the Herods built massive projects all over Israel. You can still go and see them where there are like mountains with the tops shaved off of them, where Herod would build palaces or structures or forts. And so the Herodians love the idea of taxes. They can't get enough of the taxes because it comes to them. Sure. I mean, you know how that works. Well, and here, if you think about it, these particular two groups, either one of them would have gone straight to the Romans. The Pharisees to mm-hmm. go, see, our religious, the rabbi says, we don't have to pay your taxes. And the Herodians would go and say, this guy's saying, we don't have to pay taxes. So mm-hmm. either way, if Jesus says, you're not you don't have to pay taxes or you shouldn't pay tax it's going to get back to the romans mm-hmm. and that's what they want let the well, romans the, take care of our problem totally and and they want to whittle away jesus's ability to do ministry because like you said if if he says I believe you should pay taxes. Oh, my goodness. The Pharisees are going to go to all the hyper-religious people and say he's in bed with Rome. Our Messiah is supposed to be the one who overthrows Rome, and he's totally capitulating. He's he's acquiescing to Rome. He believes that we should pay taxes and, and fund their soldiers. And, and then all the world who's like, wait a minute, that's not what we expect our Messiah to do. And so Jesus is going to lose some of his authority with the people. Right. But if he says, you know what? I don't think you should pay taxes to Caesar. Herodians would be more than happy to go to Pilate and say, you've got someone who's starting an insurrection, and Jesus gets a, a straight-up quick ticket to the cross. Right. Um, and either way, this is not the, the, the issue that Jesus wants to drive. Yeah. So he's going to make both of them look foolish. The Pharisees are coming and saying, we're more godly than you if you say pay taxes and the Rodians are are going to use the political arm of sure. power on the other side. Yeah. So it says they come to trap him in his talk, verse 14, and they came and said to him, listen to how they butter him up at the start. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. <laughs> that right there must have cost them something to say <laughs> because they're buttering Jesus up big time and then they move right into it. But they get, they understand that if he voices the opinion of paying taxes or not, there's massive consequences. And so it's it's like they're looking at the audience and saying, let's see how he answers this one. Yeah. Of course, you're, you're not going to be swayed. Your opinion, of course, is not going to be swayed by what the consequences are. So you'll tell us plainly, won't you? Yeah. And I mean, you can you can tell they're trying to pin him down. Either you're a coward who won't answer the question or you're going to answer the question in a way that's going to blow up in your face because there's no winning answer, they think. So they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, the trump card of jesus always <laughs> but knowing their hypocrisy it's like 
one of the reasons that you can't ever win an argument with God is that God knows your your whole line of reasoning and your conclusion before you tell him. It's like mm-hmm. it's like that's one of those things that he thought about this, you know, a million years ago. Yeah, it's like this it's not going to fool anybody. <laughs> Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, "Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it." And they brought one. And he said to them, "Whose likeness and inscription is this?" They said to him, Caesar's. So Caesar's on the money. Pretty simple. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. <laughs> um, I just want to put in here because I know that there are some out there. Uh, you know, I, I had that three-stage journey into being a Presbyterian. I started off as a Lutheran, then I went indie fundy for a while and then Presbyterian. During the indie fundy years, I always heard this passage spun as that they should, you know, you should pay your taxes and you should give God some money also. Hmm. And to God, the things that are God's is give God his portion also. And, you know, that was, that was all the teaching, but that's not what it means at all. Hmm. What this is concerning itself is the likeness, the image, whose hmm. likeness, whose image is on the coin. So he's, you know, when Jesus says unto God the things that are God's, what are they? What image are they looking for there, Sam? Yeah. So I mean, when you bring the the coin, you know, on the front of this coin, you have the image of Caesar, and so he's like, okay, well, how do I determine to whom this belongs? Well, Jesus asked the question, whose likeness? The Greek word there is icon. It literally means image, and he says, okay, so whose image is on it? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. And so when Jesus says, okay. You determine that this belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. You can see where we're going with this, right? If it bears his image, then it belongs to him entirely. Well, what's left unsaid and the reason that they're marveling is you had these religious leaders who are coming up to him and they're like, you know, we shouldn't da-da-da-da-da. And what Jesus is saying is, okay, the coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image. What bears God's image? Every single person that's coming to him with these questions. Yep. You bear the image of God. I bear the image of God. Every person ever created bears the image of God. And so Jesus is taking them because they're coming saying, okay, we have this religious case to make that you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because we have a really high view of God. And Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? Like, you, not only do you give that coin to Caesar because it bears his image, your whole life belongs to the Lord. Everything about you, every breath you take, the whole vineyard that you manage, your family, your talents, your time, your money, all of it belongs to God because you owe to God whatever bears his image, and that's the whole of you. And so he has made one. He's given the Herodians nothing to report because, look, the, the coin belongs to Caesar. It's gross. And in fact, what's really funny about this is when he calls the coin over... And he looks and, oh my goodness, here's this picture of Tiberius Caesar on this coin. On, around the, the, coin, the coin, it literally calls him the divine son of God. So it's Tiberius, the divine son of God, Augustus, around the coin. And when you turn the coin over on the backside of these coins, which you can still look at, we have these coins that are still in existence today. On the backside of it, it calls him Pontiff Maxim, which 
means high priest. And so the coin that they were using, right, for paying this tax literally referred to Caesar as the high priest. And the Pharisees are vying to keep it. We should be able to keep these coins. And Jesus is like pointing out, look at this thing. It's sacrilegious to start with. It's referring to Caesar as the son of God. It's referring to Caesar as the high priest. And you want to hold on to this? So it's, I mean, he's basically mocking the idea that they have a high view of God. And then he's saying, but you're withholding the very thing from God that he deserves because you bear the image of God. Yeah. And so he walks away from this encounter with the Herodians having their tail between their legs and nothing to report. And the religious leaders totally, <laughs> totally annihilated in their argument. Sure. Um, and, and it really is. Like he takes the two rival political parties of that day. Um, man, I tell you, it's, it's the same thing still to this day with Democrats and Republicans. If you were to take the platforms of the Herodians and the Pharisees, you would have the Herodians that were saying, we want more taxes and bigger government, and the Pharisees saying, no, 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 we believe the people should have the liberty and get the taxes away from us. You'd have the Herodians saying, we love foreign influence. You'd have the, Herod or the Pharisees saying, we want nothing to do with foreign influence. We'd have the Herodians saying, look at this Greek and Roman culture. It's so wonderful. We need to adapt and become like the modern world. And you have the Pharisees saying, no, 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 we were once glorious in a nation, and God showed us his favor and we want to preserve that. And so we're going to block all evil and we're going to, to, to really lift high the importance of morality. I mean, you're listening to this and you can kind of hear like, hmm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is the same situation in some senses that we find ourselves here today. And it's really instructive for me because I have very strong political beliefs, as, as I know you do too. Sure. And what is Jesus saying here? The same thing that he said earlier when he says, beware the leaven of the Herodians and the Pharisees. What does he mean by that? Don't let your gospel, do not let your view of God and what he demands from you to be polluted by a political agenda. Yeah. And I will say that that has more, and it's hard for me to say this because I really do have strong political beliefs, but what Jesus is saying here is the moment you allow a political agenda to come in and start trumping and corrupting what your gospel beliefs are, your gospel will begin to rot. It yeah. will lose its power. Yeah. And, man, he does not – every political party of Jesus' day, every one of them hated him. Yeah. You know, Jesus is saying, you're not politics. You aren't politics. You are gods, which doesn't mean we don't vote our conscience. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean we don't, you know, support – candidates and vote for people that we believe in i need to find someone <laughs> but we you know we don't it's we're not saying to you you shouldn't care about your country not not at all we're not saying that you shouldn't vote to take part in government we're just saying that what you do for your country what you do for what your political beliefs are should not determine your actions with respect to the gospel, with God, you know, just like, you know, people used to say all the time, after every football game, it seemed like you'd go talk to the guy that had the winning score, and he said, you know, uh, God wanted us to win today. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. God does not care who wins your football game. He really doesn't. 
Unless you're Florida with Tim Tebow playing back. No. <laughs> but really, he doesn't. So, you know, don't drag God into this, is what I'm saying. Um, yeah, and I think, I think as well, like, I'm right with you. I think people have an obligation to, to be prophetic priests in their culture, and the political realm plays a role in that. But you are a, an ambassador of the kingdom of God into this country and into this world, not vice versa. Right. Um, and, and the moment that you start becoming an ambassador of a political wing or a political agenda into the kingdom of God, you'll mess up. Right. You, it'll, it'll get corrupted. Right. So you are always to be Christ the ambassador right. into the, the kingdom of this world. And by the way, your citizenship in heaven should always matter more than your citizenship to any country on this earth. Right. Well, and as you have said, I have strongly held political beliefs, as do you, but I just don't run my mouth about it, and neither do you. I know all the times you've had to bite your tongue <laughs> you know, talking to people. We talk amongst ourselves because we've got this pact of, yeah, well, we just disagree on, on certain things. Not everything, but certain things. Mm-hmm. And But we don't go running around blaring out our political point of view. Mm-hmm. That would take away from our ability to be ministers of the gospel. And I am a part of the nation, United States of America, you know, a country, a representative democracy, the, the, the pinnacle of freedom in the world for hundreds of years. And I love America. Mm-hmm. I'm part of this nation, but I'm part of a bigger kingdom. I'm part Amen. of God's kingdom. And that's the kingdom I'm worried about. I'm not worried about the United States because God is in control. He sets up the leaders. He, you know, it's like, I'm just, you know, I'm concerned about a different kingdom. So, yeah. I'm worried about America, but I'm trying to work my way through how to do that as a Christian. <laughs> you know, it's tough. It really yeah. is. Yeah, uh, it is. I would, I would suggest just maybe we both of us stop reading the news on our phones as often. As I said, I got, I got an iPhone model. What now? You know, I was just about to say that for you. <laughs> so in the end, I think the reason they marveled at Jesus's answer is they realized, you know what? He answered our question. He delivered a t- teaching to us, mm-hmm. and he never mentioned taxes at all. You know? <laughs> it's like, you know, that's why he's the best. Yeah. You know, he, he's the best. He called the Pharisees to a higher form of godliness than they were challenging him with. So yeah. now they walk away looking foolish. You know, so so the people who were looking for, is he going to be godly? Is he going to hold it? Like, he, he did that more than the Pharisees did. And without calling people to some insurrection or, or like, to you know, to not paying taxes and all that stuff. Because I'll tell you, like, if you look at what Rome was doing in the ancient world, like, I would have been a card-carrying Pharisee. There's no doubt in my mind. Sure. I would have looked at what Rome was doing in the ancient world, which was truly God-awful, unbelievable wickedness, and I would have thought, I'm not giving them a dime. I'm in. We don't pay taxes. Sign me up. Yeah. And Jesus here is saying, no, which makes me go, wait, 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 Jesus, no, 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 let's, like, come on board. And he doesn't go there. So I can't go there. Yeah. So after this, we come to, you know, the Sadducees have been waiting on the bench you know, watching the Pharisees, watching the Herodians, now it's their turn to come out to their time to come out here and try to trap Jesus. Um, and they're going to create a 
quite frankly, a something of a ridiculous hypothetical situation and see if they could use it to get Jesus to say something that would be in some way critical of the law or the commandments so they could you know, destroy his reputation as a teacher. Verse 18, and the Sadducees came to him, which by the way, and I'm going to say this even though in the next phrase, Mark is going to tell you this. This whole thing is ironic because they're going to ask him about the resurrection. And as Mark says, who say there is no resurrection. And I'm going to tell you that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> so Since middle school. I, I, I was, that I was learned, a go-to in middle school for me. I learned it in middle school myself, man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and then proceed to ask him a question about the resurrection. I love this. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And by the man, they mean the man's, the man's brother, that man. The brother dies. So that man must take the widow as a wife into his house, and then so that his brother, part of the family, can have an inheritance, he's got to raise up children because it would pass to the children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it goes on to say, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And this is their question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Um, hmm. That would be in the resurrection they don't believe will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're good like that. They are good like that. <laughs> um, and, of course, this kind of gets us into, you know, as in the study questions this week, I said it's a good opportunity for us to sort of, you know, meditate on the resurrection. On You know, we don't talk about the resurrection all that much. Uh, we, we tend to be really focused on uh, how do we live here? knowing that we'll live again there in the resurrection. But there are certain things that the Bible tells us about the resurrection. One of them is that life in the resurrection will be different than Mm -hmm. life is now. That in the resurrection, we will all be freed to serve and worship God first and always. Like It's like everything that we have that takes our mind away from worshiping God will be taken care of. It's all gone. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, the biggest difference between this life and the resurrection is that in the resurrection, we are going to be most interested in serving God and worshiping him, singing his praises, just like the angels do. Um, and that's what Jesus says, right? Mm-hmm. Essentially, like what what they're going at. And this is also a story that offers unthinkable dignity to women that would not have existed in, in the first century. Sure. Um, because at the basis of this, they're saying, okay, we don't believe in the resurrection, so let's let's get them to take a position on the resurrection that's going to, again, make some people fall away from him. Because everybody was divided over everything. Sound familiar? Yeah. Back then. And the the Sadducees know that if he says, okay, this is what I believe about the resurrection or the end times – People are going to be like, well, I don't, I don't buy that. He's wrong about that, and so he, it's going to whittle down, whittle away his following. And so all these different political groups are trying to get him to take stances. And on this one, Jesus will take a stance that would have 
I think, shocked everyone who heard what he said. Mm-hmm. I don't think there would have been any camp that would have felt comfortable with his response because in that world, a woman essentially um, – even with the most well-intentioned first-century Jews, a woman essentially belonged under the authority of another man. Right. Um, she was a possession. And so, okay, she has to be somebody's wife in heaven. If she's married seven people, then which one of them gets to claim her? Because she has to belong to somebody in heaven, right? And what they're after is – what they're saying is, see, so this whole idea of the resurrection is absurd because you can't give the woman to any of the seven. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be right. God would never do that. And Jesus comes back at them and, and says, the basis of your question is stupid. You know neither <laughs> the scriptures or the power of God. Yeah. And he really puts them in their place for presuming upon what heaven is going to be like uh, in a way that would have shocked everyone who is listening. I think there's I think there's a subtle dig going on here, too, because um, as you were telling me, the Sadducees, they only believed in the Pentateuch, the first five mm-hmm. books of Moses, the the whole prophets, all the rest of the Old Testament – I I don't know what they thought of that, but it wasn't holy scripture. It's like they Correct. had their they had their list. So what Jesus says to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. I think that, that you know neither the scriptures, Jesus is saying, there's more than five. <laughs> there's and more even, than five books. Yeah, and even in the five, there's allusions to the resurrection. There's allusions sure. to the re- resurrection in the Torah as well. And he's like and you don't even believe what it, you don't even understand it. You don't know the scriptures. You're denying the power of God, which they really did. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection or anything like that. Miraculous power or intervening power of God. And so he's calling them out. So he's, he's, he's basically sending the Pharisees away saying, I'm not one of you. He sends the Herodians away saying, I'm not one of you. Now he's sending the Sadducees away saying, I'm not one of you. And they all hate him. Yeah. So verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? You like that one, right, guys? You've read Mm -hmm. there, right? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was, Mm -hmm. you know. Those guys had passed away, but they were still alive mm-hmm. with God. So he is still, he's the I am their God. And he says that he is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are not just wrong. Jesus says, you are quite wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite parts, and this is this is perhaps going to be too much of a rabbit trail that need, will need to get cut, is in the Old Testament, you know, you have all these men who were polygamous, right? You know, Abraham uh, will have more than one wife. You'll, you know, at least impregnate more than one woman. You have Jacob who has two wives and a couple concubines. You have Solomon who has hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. And it's you spread around. And people would ask the question. It was one of the debating points that the rabbis would go over. Okay. If if God is a monogamous God, who gets to be Solomon's wife in heaven? Who gets to be Jacob's wife in heaven? And you read the story of Jacob in the Old Testament, and it's a heartbreaking story because he, he'll marry Leah and he marries Rachel, right? And, and R- Leah is the unattractive one. Jacob loves Rachel, right? His heart is for her all the time. 
he's he dotes over her and he actually despises Leah. She's not attractive. She, she he didn't want to marry her in the first place. And so every time Leah has a child, it's really fascinating. He'll she'll name the child something like, you know, Reuben, which perhaps he'll see me now, or Simeon, perhaps he'll hear me now. And all these things, it's like, man, maybe I'll get the love of Jacob now. Maybe I'll get the love of Jacob now. And when she gets to the fourth child that she has, she names him Judah, which Jesus will be in the line of Judah. And that time, what Judah means praise in Hebrew. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. I'm not going to chase after the affections of my husband. I'm not going to find my identity in the love of my husband. He's not giving it to me. It's been crushing me for years. This time I'm going to find my identity and my love in the Lord. And so she names her son Judah. And I think, you know, the Lord at that, and then the Lord blesses her womb with the child that's going to bring about the line of the Savior. And I think about that, like, in heaven, is Leah and Rachel still going to share Jacob? And, like, the way that we understand marriage, there's something sad to us when we think, you know, I love Laura with every part of myself. Like, I, when I think about heaven and someone comes and says, you know, there's no marriage in heaven, so you're not going to be married to Laura, like, everything in me goes, no. I don't like that, you know. Yeah. I want to be married to her, but what God is saying is, all of the all of the things that go on in marriage, you know, the idea that a woman belongs under the headship of a man, and all these kinds of things, and all the insecurities that come, and the pain, and the divorce, and all the ways that fallen relationships screw that up. The reason why you need marriage in this world is because, in some sense, like there is a brokenness. You need sanctuary from the world. You need to make a promise that you're never going to leave or forsake or or cheat on, and all these kinds of things. In heaven, I might not be married to Laura anymore. You know, her husband will be the Lord. My husband will be the Lord. In a spiritual sense, we'll be married to the Lord. But my love for Laura will be far more intense and far grander and far more pure than anything that we were able to muster with fallen persons in this world. And so, he's not saying that my marriage to Laura gets demoted in heaven. What he's saying is, no, when you get to heaven, the, the perfection and purity and power of your love is going to be like nothing you've ever, ever imagined before, but it's going to be like that, not just toward the Lord, but toward every other single person that's in heaven, which will essentially, it'll dilute the whole purpose of marriage. You'll have it with everyone, that kind of incredible love that's beyond your ability to imagine and here's the deal. A woman, when she gets to heaven, because the Sadducees are essentially saying, you know, to whom is she going to belong? You know, which, which wife is Jacob going to have? And the Lord comes and says, man, there is such an outrageous dignity in heaven that I am now the head of every household. Everybody is married to me. There is no – females do not belong to a man in heaven as the first century Jews would have believed and the women would have heard that, and the men would have heard that and thought, oh, that's scandalous. And it was revolutionary in, in the day that Jesus said it. You know, that's why in the New Testament, when you get, you know, it, when, when Paul talks about this, he talks about how there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, man nor female. Because in the eyes of God, everyone is an heir, everyone gets the inheritance, everyone is brought up 
into you know status as the bride of Christ collectively and recipient of incredible inheritance and power to co-reign with him to where all the 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 premise of the Sadducees question is decimated yeah. in heaven. Yeah. I mean if you think about it um in this life and in this world we all have moments where we feel closer in some sense to God. The veil starts to get thin. You have an experience, whether it's whatever it is, whether there's there's many times in many different circumstances under which people say, I you know, I've I've never felt such love for God. I've never felt so close to him. And what's gonna happen in heaven is that everything else other than that will will be washed away. It's like we're going to be left with that one thing, which is this tremendous love and fellowship and closeness with God. Our emotional needs will be met. Our physical needs will be met. Um, and we will all be, you know, together with people who are all the same way. You know, there's not mm-hmm. going to be political parties in heaven. There's not going to be different ways of looking at things in heaven. We will all look at things correctly because all of us are going to be looking to the Lord. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, originally, like you, I was like, I don't want to lose my wife in heaven. But I was like, you know, what that is is my human weakness speaking. It's my flesh talking. And I, I love my wife, you know, more than my life itself. I would do anything for her. Um, but I also understand that God's got something better. I can barely conceive of it, but I believe <laughs> that it's better. And I'm like, I want to see what that is. Mm-hmm. I want to feel that, you know? Um, yeah. And you don't lose the special relationship that you have with her. You know? You know? Like, it's never it's never that I'm going to forget, you know, God gave me Laura in this, this life, and... You know, this unbelievably rich, wonderful marriage. Like, you, you don't forget that. That never ceases to be special. But everything else is elevated to such richness and beauty that it kind of overwhelms and consumes the marriage to where yeah. it's not necessary anymore. The specialness doesn't go away. No. But it's that everything else gets so amazing that it kind of dissolves it yeah. just by by nature of who you will become in Christ when you're brought into glory. Um, and that's something I can get excited about, and it doesn't make me sad. The first time I heard this teaching, I was like, "No, <laughs> I, I don't like this." I understand. You know, I don't want to go to heaven now. Well, think about that. <laughs> She'll be there, and you won't. Is that what you want? No. So, you know, and the other thing too is that there's there are things where it talks about Jesus, you know, making a new heavens and a new earth. That there's a day when the earth will be this will be remade will it be the same planet i don't know i don't i have no idea how god wants to do it but it will be a place where we can live as we should have lived in the garden it's going to be a place where you know god god wants us back to the garden that was Mm -hmm. his plan for how we should live um now i understand that for some people when they read about life in the garden and they read about this sort of pastoral agrarian lifestyle, they're thinking, but where will I get internet? I understand. I understand that. But You might have to buy a rake, Mark. Yeah, I might have to actually buy a rake. So, uh, But the thing is that 
do I know exactly what life is going to be like in that new earth? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, and, you know, there's going to be heavens and there's going to be earth. And, you know, when it tells us about the garden, it says God came down and walked with Adam. Um, and I'm assuming that there'll be times where we'll go up and surround the throne. And I don't know. I have no idea what that's going to be like. But the thing that I can tell you is it's going to be better. It's going mm-hmm. to be so good that our memories of anything else will fade. Amen. So, you know, and we just have to accept that. And the Sadducees, they got none of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, but they, I think they felt pretty well scolded. Um, so then they go slinking off, and we come here to verse 28, where we're going to be talking about the great commandment. I actually think, you can tell me what you think, what you think, Sam. I think this scribe came to Jesus and asked a serious question. I don't think that this guy was trying to trap Jesus in anything. He yeah, was it, hearing Jesus' answer and went, this man knows everything. Yeah, it throws in this little clause when it says, you know, the scribe comes up. And a scribe, by the way, and the old – they were the ones that copied the word. They were the sco- real scholars of the word of God. They, the modern equivalent would be, I've heard someone say, a seminary professor. Right. And I think that's, I think that's pretty, pretty spot on. Um, but it says, seeing that he answered them well – um, and so there's one of two ways that you can take it, and I tend to to fall with you a little bit on this. I think he's like, man, this guy's brilliant. I got this question that's always being asked. I'd love to get his opinion on it. The other way that you could interpret this is seeing that he answered them well. This guy's really proud and says, well, I can stump him. Yeah. But I think I think he's coming and and saying, I'd like to know what you think about this. Well, and I base you answered a, that well. I base a lot of that on verse 34, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, So verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? That was the kind of thing these scribes debated back then, because they, and let's be honest, they copied a lot of commandments when they Mm -hmm. were copying the scriptures. They were probably asking, Lord, which one do we really have to copy? 613. If you take the Torah, you divide out the law. 613 commandments in all. So they said, he says, which commandment is most important of all? And, you know, this is the moment for Jesus to go, all commandments are important. Get back and copy more. But that's not (laughs) what he actually says. He says, Jesus answered, the most important is, which means there is a commandment that is most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So that's a pretty strong answer. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it has elements of, I mean, it's hero Lord or hero Israel, the Lord our God. That's part of the Shema, right? Yeah, all, that, the, all this commandment, the first part of the commandment, that's all part of the Shema. Yeah. And so that's Deuteronomy 6. So when Moses is commanding the people, they're about to go into the promised land. He says, look, like, this is really important. If you're going to hang on to the blessings that God has given you, this is what you need to do. And, you know, at synagogue, they read this at the beginning of synagogue services. It's very important. And he goes and he explains, you know, when you leave your house, when you come into your house, when you go to bed, when you rise up, when you're, you know, working with your mind, when you're working with your hands – all of this, you should have the, the love of the Lord on your mind all the time and his commandments. 
And so this is how the Shema leads off, and this command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, is found in in that Deuteronomy 6 passage. Verse 31, he gives him some bonus information. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If you think about it for just a second, those two commandments, so many of the commandments are concerned with what you are not allowed to do to your neighbor or Mm -hmm. what you have to do for your neighbor, what you are not allowed to do for God, what you must do for God. Mm -hmm. It just goes into all this great detail. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you love God with everything you have, and, and that means mind, spirit, body, everything. You don't have to worry about whether you're doing the right things or not. You will do them because you love him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And other gospels, you know, and this in Mark, it records them saying there's no other commandment greater than these. And other gospels, it says all of the law and the prophets hangs on these two commandments. Um, and so what Jesus is saying, okay, you can take the entirety of the 613 commands that you find in the Torah. If you follow these two, you're good. <laughs> you yeah. know, like it covers all of them. And yeah. really, like you think about the Ten Commandments and the, the first four of them are dealing with how you relate to God. You know, you have one God, no idols. You know, don't take his name in vain and, and honor him on the Sabbath. So it's always to love God where the last portion of the Ten Commandments all deal with how you have interpersonal relationships. You honor your father, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet other people's stuff. And so what you could boil all of the Ten Commandments down to, okay, love God, this is how you love him, love man, this is how you love him. Um, and it's all wrapped up in these two. In an, in an attempt to get people buzzing this week to see how they would answer it, one of the study questions in personal worship for this day was if God could in fact sum up all of the other commandments in these two commandments, why do you think God didn't just give us these two and stop right there? So we'll see. That could be an interesting discussion question this week. You know, there was one of our founding fathers who said with, with much wickedness, the, lead, the need for more laws increases. Yeah. And so, you know, you can always tell the wickedness of a society based on how many laws they have <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's like when you look at the hair dryer and it's like, you know, do not lick this or some crazy instruction on the directions and you're thinking, why why does that need to be on this tag? Yeah. Somebody actually licked the hair dryer, yeah. you know, or something. With much wickedness, there's the need for more laws. And I think what Jesus is doing is he's simplifying it down. It appeals to my libertarian nature, you know, with all the bureaucracy and laws and everything else that, you know, that made the religious leaders, like, argue endlessly over this. He's like, man, you're missing the heart of it. The the heart of the entirety of the law is not all this self-righteousness and rigmarole and rituals and all that stuff. The heart of the law is love, and you guys are missing it. Yeah. You're missing it. And honest, if I was going to answer the question, you're like, okay, you wrote that question. How would you answer it? I would say the problem is that humans in their selfishness and their wickedness and their lack of humility can redefine the word love many different ways. Um, and they can tell you that something is this is I'm alive. This is this is loving. I love him. You know, uh, that's why I'm taking his stuff. You know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> well, we've seen that. You know, sure. one of the ironies is the the second great command here when he says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." 
this is this is this is not originating for the first time out of Jesus's mouth. It actually is coming from the book of Leviticus, which is you know the third book of the Bible. That when people get to it, they skip to Joshua because right. it's all laws and stuff. But listen, to, this is verses seventeen and eighteen of Leviticus chapter nineteen. He says, "You shall not hate your brother in your heart." But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. That word sometimes is translated rebuke, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so in Leviticus, he's kind of defining, like, this is what love looks like. You don't hate someone. You don't hold grudges. You don't seek vengeance. And by the way, if you see your neighbor in error, you should reason frankly with them, lest you incur sin because of them. And so you think of how people do love, and, and they'll go to extremes, and they'll hold grudges because I love this camp, I have to hate that camp. And Jesus, here in this definition, is like, nope, that's not allowed. Yeah. Or you get people who say, you know what, if you love someone, you need to tell them whatever floats your boat. You need to just support them in whatever they pursue, right? And Jesus also says here in this passage, no, no, no. You should reason frankly or rebuke your neighbor when you find him in error because that also is loving. I've said this before that if if I say, you know, hey, Mark, I am going to have an affair on Laura tonight. I've already made arrangements. What's the most loving thing you can do is to totally rebuke me, yeah. tackle me, do whatever you <laughs> do, whatever you have to do. Hog to tie keep... you and sit on you and you wouldn't enjoy that. <laughs> That's awesome. But but you know what I mean? Like our culture has lost the ability to understand that you can disagree with somebody from a place of love. Like the reason why I'm going to, to talk with you about some behavior or whatever is from a place of love. And we just immediately, our whole culture says that if there's any disagreement, we immediately attribute hate to that. And it's, it's unfortunate. But yeah. Jesus – in the larger definition of love like you're talking about, because people redefine that word, is saying, no, 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 you're not allowed to hold a grudge, you're not allowed to seek vengeance, and you're not allowed to just let someone drift off into a destructive lifestyle without saying anything. Right. All of that is encapsulated in love, and we are terrible at all of it. Right. And there will be the day when love is not you know, weighted down with all of our humanity. Again, mm-hmm. talking about in the resurrection. There's going to be a day where our love is what love should be. Mm-hmm. And that the only thing we will need to know is love God with everything. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's going to be a perfect arrangement. Mm-hmm. It's not today because we're flawed and we think we're clever. And we can figure <laughs> out ways to redefine this word. Um, but it Which will is, be someday. So when Jesus on, on the... The night of the Last Supper is one of our favorite passages, but he comes and he says, a new commandment I give to you. And he changes it from love your neighbor as yourself to love others as I have loved you. And that, woo, <laughs> yeah. that, that leaves very little wiggle room on what love means. There love are means, high bars and there are bars I can't even see from here. <laughs> that's, that's correct. That's one of those I can't see from here. But you can't confuse that with a lack of mercy. You can't, yeah. like, if you love someone as Jesus loves, then that means that you are loving to a high degree of self-sacrifice. Yep. And it costs something. Yeah. Yep. So verse 32, we have the uh, this 
closing exchange between Jesus and the scribe. And this section here is, is why I think it was genuine, why I think the scribe came to ask him a question because he perceived how just how brilliant Jesus was answering questions. Mm-hmm. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the answer from Jesus in verse 34 is, and when Jesus saw that he, who, the scribe, had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. (laughs) And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Man. Um, but I, I do think that I think that, that last thing you're not far from the kingdom of God. What what's that mean? And I think that that was Jesus, you know, encouraging this guy to continue his study and his meditation and his reflection because mm-hmm. it's like you're you're starting to get it, you're starting to see it. It's right there in front of you. You'll find it. You know that kind of thing. After all the the obnoxious confrontations with the Pharisees over minutia and Sabbath laws and everything else to have someone who comes and says, you know what, like all the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the Levitical law, yeah, that's you're, that's that's so secondary to love. You're right, Jesus. Like that, for Jesus, that had to have been like a, just a nice, cool glass of cold water. Like, uh, finally, yeah. <laughs> you know, a scribe or a religious leader who really understands yeah. what the kingdom of God is after. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I believe it was a genuine exchange. Yeah, I'm not. It's cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Those people who want to say this guy was just trying to get his opportunity and take his swing, fine. For me, I see somebody who was being honest with Jesus, who asked him a serious question, got a serious answer, recognized it was a true answer and what it meant, and then Jesus was like very warm with him at the end. So, mm. you know. But now what happens next is that it's time for Jesus to start asking questions. <laughs> and things aren't going to go quite so well from here to the end. Uh, as far as just people being able, I mean, no one's even able to answer it, hardly. Um, verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So what's Jesus getting at there? This is really confusing. You kind of have to go through it a few times to understand where Jesus is going. But So a thousand years before Jesus came around... David is writing the Psalms. And, you know, we know that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, is going to come through David. We're, we, he, we get that with the covenant that's laid out through Samuel to David. And so then David starts writing these Psalms. And in one of them, which is Psalm 110, um, it, it says, David, so David is writing the Psalm and he says, The Lord said to my Lord, referring to the future Savior and the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so this is the Messianic king. This is this is prophecy that's going back all the way to Genesis. So clearly David is writing about the one who's coming to rescue the nations. But he says, the Lord said to my Lord. 
So what Jesus is saying, okay, if this is just a son of David, you know, a descendant of David that emerges a thousand years after David is living, then David would just refer to him as a son, but he doesn't. When he's writing about him, he said, the Lord said to my Lord. And so what Jesus is trying to get these Pharisees to understand that they didn't, all the people in the temple, the priests and everybody else, is they had this belief that the Messiah would come, that he would be merely a human. And Jesus is challenging them, saying, you know, when David writes about this, he doesn't just refer to him as a son, as though he's just an ordinary person who's a descendant. He refers to him as a son, because he will be the son of David, but he's also my Lord, which means that he is both human, a descendant of David, and he's God. And so, what he's challenging these Pharisees with is, who could this be? How can it be both God and a son of David? Answer me. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the correct answer is, he's both God and man, merged in the flesh, a descendant of David who is born of the power of the Spirit of God, which is what we believe about Jesus. And they're so, they're like, I, I, uh, uh, I, I don't know what to do with that question. And so they look rather foolish because they can't consider that a man would be God. That's one of the great stumbling blocks of the religious leaders is believing that God would come in the flesh. And so next, he's continuing his teaching, I'm assuming in the temple. Uh, Verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces, you know, they want to be important and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They like the perks that come with the job mm-hmm. who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. One of the commentaries that I saw was talking about verse 40 who devour widows' houses and said that that the scribes were uh, basically supported or paid through offerings, through gifts. Um, They didn't necessarily, being a scribe didn't pay X amount of drachma or whatever. You you got money from people as they contributed it to you. And so that that scribes were known to be very fond of wealthy widows and that they would, you know, basically sort of, I guess, kiss up to them and and get them to give them lots of money. And that that's what the who devour widows' houses mean. Um, is that what you think? Or is it something different? Yeah, I mean, I've never read a commentary in it. So my when I read it, that makes total sense to me. But when I read it, I know that widows that were um, that lost husbands and also were without sons had very few property rights and so it was – I always just assumed that they actually literally took the possessions of the widows without really caring for them um, and just redistributed it for, for their own gain. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, either way, I, that's the heart behind it. They're, yeah. they're totally exploiting the widows. They know that they're powerless. They know that they can't you know, fight back or anything like that. So they just basically take their inheritances, use it for personal gain and leave them destitute. Yeah. These were, I mean, these were some of the worst of Mm -hmm. at least certain men among them. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that every single scribe was this way, but it was enough that Jesus had something to say about them like this in a sort of generic sense. Mm -hmm. And 
to me, the two things that I see there that are, I don't know, the worst. I mean, I understand to some extent I can understand because it's nice. People come up to you, hey, scribe, love what you said last week. High five. Uh, the best seats and the places of honor at feasts. That's just fun. That's recognition. Should they be that way? No, but it's like I can sort of understand that they enjoyed their job. Mm-hmm. But to say who devours widow's houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So they just they're just babbling. They don't really have anything to pray about. They're not it's not a genuine prayer. It's just words that they're saying to impress the people who are listening, which means that in those prayers they are offering the listeners some degree of false hope. And I'm like, so you take money from people to the point that it becomes abusive, and in return, you give them, you know, 20 minutes of gibberish that, that's, that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really get worse than that. And Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation. If I was a scribe, I'd be maybe looking for a change of clothes at that point. <laughs> Definitely. It makes you wonder what that the scribe who was close to the kingdom, how he would have heard this because Jesus is addressing those of his profession. Yeah. And and you notice here all of this when you think about, you know, the, the role of somebody who goes into ministry is to point people's hearts to the Lord, right? Always. You know, we want to be invisible. We want people to find their satisfaction and hope in the Lord, not us. And everything that they're doing, the long robes, the greetings, the best seats, the places of honor, you know, chewing up widows' houses and, you know, praying for a long time just to be noticed, everything is about them. And he is saying, like, look, you know, you're the people that are supposed to be the ones pointing to the kingdom of God who know the most, and yet you've taken this, and it's all about you. Everything you do is to gain reward here in this world. Yeah. for yourself, and it has you. You're not honoring me. I'm not even. I'm not even an afterthought for yeah. you. Um, and it's it's really rather gross. Um, and I love you know Jesus when he rebukes them stands up for the widows. And again, like we read that, and then with a 21st century mindset, it's like of course you know you defend the widows. But man, in the ancient world, widows were seen as cursed. We I, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. But when he sticks up for the widows and he tears down the scribes, everybody would have been been like, man, he's picking the losing cause. They have no power. What can they do for him? Right. You know, he's shredding the people who could pave his way. Right. Um, but that's the heart of the New Testament. You you read again and again, and the New Testament is filled with commands and encouragements to take care of widows, um, orphans, you know, true and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. You know, there's other places in the New Testament where it says that if if you're not taking care of, you know, widows that that are in your house, the people who are needy in your house who've come across hard times, you're worse than an unbeliever. And the New Testament leaves you, and the Old Testament for that matter, is filled with instructions and commands to take care of the widows. So this isn't new, but they just ignored it. The widows had no power. Okay, God commands it, but who cares? Like, they have no power. What can they do to us? And they're totally ignoring God, always. And, you know, those people out there that are iPhone messenger savvy, you know the thing where when you get a a text from somebody, you can hold a finger down on it and get the little reaction thing, and they've got the double exclamation mark for emphasize, like, yeah, you said it, you know? Well, 
Jesus just did that for what you just said uh, here in, in verse 41. He's emphasizing your text message, Sam. Uh, <laughs> it, it says, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Um, what Jesus is saying about, you know, all that money stuff is that he's not about the money. He's about their heart. Mm -hmm. And what the widow showed is that she had a heart for the Lord. Despite her terrible circumstances, she wanted God to know, I value you more than anything. And the rich folks are like, uh, take that sack of gold and give an offering. (laughs) You know, I know there's, there's 12 of them back there. Pick anyone you want. That kind of thing. Yeah. And here, I mean, there's just, there's a couple things that you see in the heart of Jesus again. Again, he's picking the one who is entirely powerless. She's poor. So he's not devouring houses here, right? She doesn't have anything to offer. She's a poor widow. So she's utterly powerless. And then here comes all the, you know, the the train of wealthy people with their abundance. And he's essentially saying, like, I know this didn't cost you much. And he doesn't, you know, flatter them he doesn't come up but he honors her above them beyond them and he's lifting her up the the neglected one that most people probably were like all right get out of the way we got important people here um and he's always doing that you know he looks for people who have those those genuine and tender hearts that out of faithfulness give as much and as best they can and that just honors him you know he's he is absolutely um, thrilled with the heart of this woman where he's looking at all the scribes and Pharisees and preachers and teachers of the law and everybody else running around and the wealthy, and he's like, this didn't cost you anything. Your heart's not in it. Your heart's not in it at all. But this woman who who's you know coming with a heart that's overflowing only gave these two mites, but she gave more than all of you, right. you know? And I, I just I love that that's his heart. It's convicting, and it's a bit scary because I don't feel oftentimes like I, you know, I'm living this extravagant life where I'm pouring out my whole life for the sake of the kingdom. I feel comfortable in a lot of ways, um, and you know, I, I think there's a lot of people that are, you know, going to be in in better seats than I in the the kingdom of God. But yeah. it, it does make me wish that I had that heart like that that could look at all the the desire to be loved. The desire to have men's applause, all the possessions and the security that finances offer and everything else and be like, you know what? Like I ha- she gave everything. Yeah. Can I be that generous? Yeah. Do I do I love the Lord in this kingdom enough to let go of the things that I find great value in this world that are all perishing, you know? You know, um one of the things that the offering box asks us is it asks us did this hurt? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. w- did you give something that had some impact on you? You know, maybe this year you don't get the new car, but you contributed to building a house in Haiti somewhere or whatever. What, whatever you 
choose to give. And I'm not here to tell you how much to give or when to give or whatever. But I will say this, that if what you give is really no big deal, if it doesn't touch you in any way, and there's no aspect of it that you say, okay, God, you're, this, you, you know, this is for you, that you deserve this. And the second question it asks you is, how much do you value God? You know, what's the value you assign to God? Do you assign God the value that, that covers only a small percentage of what God has given to you? Or do you give God value where he is above everything else and you're willing to do something like this for him? You're willing to make an offering even when it's something that's uncomfortable to make because mm-hmm. it costs you something. Um, you know, we need to remember that what Jesus did for us, it cost him everything. Yeah. So, you know, you go back to the beginning of this chapter with the, the parable of the vineyard and, you know, the Lord sends his messengers and, you know, for a, for a piece of what you're managing, you know, it's it's in that parable. And there's, you know, I guess there's three different ways that you can go about it. And there's there's one way that says, no, 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 it's all mine. Get away from me. I'm not going to give you anything. It's all mine. And that's that's the way that Israel behaved in the Old Testament. Then the second way is, okay, I'm going to give you exactly the minimum of what you're asking. And then there's the third heart, which this widow exemplifies, where she gives far more than the Lord is asking. She doesn't give 10%. She gives 100% of what very little she had. And, you know, the, as, as tenants of the vineyard, if we went back to that first parable, you know, I want a heart that, that's recognizing that it all belongs to him, that he's right. built it all, that he's given it all, that when he sends someone to say, hey, you know, I would like our agreed upon arrangement or portion that I don't, you know, grumble at that. But in fact, I think, man, like, I'm going to give you as much as I can. To honor you, because this is all a gift from you. I want to be generous with this life you've called me to. Um, and I, that's kind of the heart behind a lot of what's in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you notice the religious people, and it's it's a we shouldn't have to give our taxes, and we shouldn't have to give the offering at the vineyard, and we shouldn't have to, you know, everything is about, I shouldn't have to give away my wife, and, you know, whose is she going to be? It's all about what I get to keep and what's for me. And Jesus is calling for a heart that looks at everything you own as a gift and a heart that's eager to recognize Jesus get like you said Jesus gave it all away for us we should have a heart that's at least eager that wants to be able to give it all away for him yeah every time we talk about offerings it's always one of those you know touchy subjects don't preach on money don't preach on politics um but the fact is that there's no shame in talking about money Jesus talked about money a great deal mm-hmm. um it's not about the money. It's not about how much you give. The money is a way that it shows where your heart is. Remember mm-hmm. years ago when Tom was first at our church, this goes way back. Remember him giving a sermon in which he said this, and I've heard other preachers say it, so it's they're all stealing it from each other. Tom has said this is you can tell how old it is, by the way, by what it's going what I'm going to say. Tom <laughs> said, if you let me spend five minutes with your checkbook. I will tell you what you worship. Hmm. And uh, by the way, I don't think I even have a checkbook anymore. I think it's all totally electronic now. (laughs) Um, But that's true. You know, Um, if you look at how 
you know, do we hold what we have with an open hand? Do we make it available to God? Um, I'm not saying give it away because you feel like God doesn't love you if you don't. I'm saying give it away because you love him. That's mm-hmm. what that's what this is about. That's what that's what Jesus is ending with here at the end. He sees that widow and he says, "She is the one that understands how valuable I am." Amen. Yeah, you can't say that's a good word because you said it. So should I say it? Mark, that's a good word. And I think we should end on that word. <laughs> so it's my turn to say a good word this week. Okay, I'll take it. I just wanted to try it one time. That, that's, I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> folks, if you'd like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at com. That's R-I-O-Vista-Church.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of our podcast at com forward slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will return next week with another in our series from the Gospel of Mark on the mission of Jesus, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.